are rising rates really that bad for growth stocks? And would a legendary economist be proud of you for owning some Bitcoin? And we answer a listener question about retiring early right before a feared financial crisis. Hello and welcome back to the Invest Smarter Podcast, the show that helps results-driven people make results-driven financial decisions so you can build and preserve your wealth and spend more time doing what you love. Now, first, I just want to clarify what I mean when I say results-driven. What I mean is you are someone who has a vision, a goal, a dream, and is ready and motivated to take the fastest and most efficient route to get there. In the personal finance and investing world, the consequences of making even just one poor decision is not worth it. Uh, It can delay and derail your journey to financial independence or to whatever your goals or dreams are. So one of the purposes of this podcast is to make sure that you stay on top of the important things that are happening now that can impact your finances. I want you to know what's coming around the corner, and I want you to be aware of insights that can help keep your current financial plan in order to keep forging ahead towards your dreams. If that's you, then this podcast is for you. Let's get the results we want together. With that, I've got a few things to talk about today. And first, what I got for you is a little bit about interest rates. Have you noticed that your tech stocks and the growthier portions of your portfolio have been acting up recently? With the recent volatility on the heels of the Evergrande situation in China, but then also interest rates moving higher, I want to talk to you about why rising rates are in theory bad for tech and growth stocks but the data shows that it's not always the case. Then we are going to talk about why investing some of your money in Bitcoin could mean that you are investing like a pro using a Nobel-winning investment philosophy. We're going to finish today's show with a listener question from Steve, who's planning on retiring early, but is starting to fear that there could be a large market correction based on some of the articles he's been reading. Before I dive in, I want to express my sincere gratitude to everyone who's been tuning in every single week. Now, every month I send out a newsletter where I compile articles that I'm reading that are super thought-provoking and very interesting that I think um, you'll enjoy. And this has been really the most popular part of the newsletter that I send out. And also in the newsletter, I include a market commentary as well as recent blogs and podcast episodes. I'd love for you to join the growing community. Visit dewittcm.com slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. I do take a lot of pride in it, as well as this podcast, and I don't think you will be disappointed with it. All opinions expressed in the show are solely the opinions of myself or any guests on the show and do not reflect the opinions of DeWitt Capital Management. All content within the podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any decision making. With that said, let's get going. So let's talk about interest rates. This year, there is a definite relationship between rising rates and falling stock prices. Ben Carlson put out a great piece the other day on his blog showing the inverse relationship between yields and the QQQ, which is the 100 biggest stocks in the tech-heavy NASDAQ. Sure enough, in 2021, rising rates have equaled weakness in the QQQ. So why is this happening in theory? In theory, it's all about the cash flows. Every single financial asset's valuation is equal to the present value of its future cash flows. After all, when we buy an investment, we are expecting a return, right? So in order to come up with a present value of future cash flows, you discount the future cash flows at prevailing interest rates or some variation of that depending on the asset class and the valuation methods nuances. But the theory is the higher the discount rate, the lower the present value. And the further out in the future you have to wait for cash flows, the lower the present value. So in other words, the higher the interest rate, 
the lower the stock price, all else being equal. An easy way to think about this is that intuitively, since the risk-free rate of return or government bond yields are giving you a bigger return that makes the relative attractiveness of a stock that might not even be profitable yet in the case of many growth stocks, considerably less depending on how high interest rates move. Investment managers who need to earn a return for their and clients, whether it be individuals, pensions, or endowments, what have you, they'll be incentivized to shift their asset allocations to less risky areas of the market that are offering higher nominal rates of return. And I'm using the term nominal rate of return because right now in this inflationary environment, even with rates on the 10-year taking up to around 1.6% as of the time of this recording, uh, that's still well less than current inflation run rates. So real returns, which factor in inflation, are very much looking negative right now, which is for another discussion. But that does suggest that in order to find return in this market currently, investors in general are still kind of being pushed uh, up the risk spectrum into stocks. So we have established that higher rates mean lower stock prices, all else being equal, as the value of future cash flows is relatively less. Another way to think about this is that growth stocks are investing now for future growth. And if they are in a rising rate period and the company needs access to capital or to borrow money to make these investments, then they will have to pay higher interest down the road, which again may erode into future profitability. And that is why during the last 10 years or so of low interest, it's been called easy money. Money's been easy to get and it's been cheap. Interest rates have been very low. Growth stocks have been able to borrow at virtually nothing and invest in their futures. Now, value stocks tend to do better than growth stocks when rates are rising. Value stocks tend to be in the midst of actually earning those future cash flows that they invested for earlier. They were once expected future cash flows, just like we are talking about with growth stocks. They are earning them now, so investors are happier to hold on to these stocks in times of rising rates. Though, in theory, they still get a little haircut because their cost of capital is rising as well. And valuation models will spit out what should be a lower stock price. Doesn't always happen in practice, though. And, and value stocks, generally speaking, won't need to access capital nearly as much to fund growth because, after all, they are in the midst of earning their cash flows, positive cash flows, which they can use to continue their operations and invest in themselves. So does this theory hold up in the real world? Well, the answer is not always. Financial markets are so incredibly complex, driven by human emotions, and are subject to thousands of ever-changing and swaying expectations, variables, beliefs, and so on. So if the theory were to hold in practice, you'd expect that the correlation between the 10-year treasury yields and the QQQ price to be consistently negative, or every time yields went up, the QQQ would go down. But it's just not the case. Since 2020, the only consistent thing about the correlation was that it oscillated very regularly into both negative and positive territory. Case in point, interest rates fell from 6.5% in the early 2000s to just over 3% a few years later. And during that time, tech stocks got crushed, crashing 80%. Well, that obviously isn't holding up the theory at all. In another case, from the summer of 2016 through the winter of 2018, interest rates more than doubled from 1.4% to 3.2%. So you'd think that stocks would get, would get crushed. But no, tech stocks rose around 60% over this time frame. And and those two data points are thanks to Ben Carlson's article and the research he did 
And so the point is, for instance, if during those two periods you were trading stocks based on what the theory said, you would have gone absolutely, absolutely smoked. So there's way more to this than just some simple theory. Yeah, there's lots of theories that we make to explain things, but but theories in financial markets rarely work all the time. So while this year the theory is holding true, I can all but guarantee you it won't forever. Moving on, let's quickly go over why adding Bitcoin to your portfolio could mean you are investing like a Nobel Prize winning economist. But before I go there, Bitcoin, crypto, NFTs, decentralization, these are all really hot topics right now. And I want to say with full disclosure, I have extremely minimal exposure to anything in the crypto world. In fact, I have such a minuscule amount of Bitcoin, it's not even worth mentioning. But I did decide that I would start buying Bitcoin with my new credit card, which allows me to automatically invest my reward points into Bitcoin. I started this about a month ago, so my exposure is directly tied to how much money I spend in a given month. So I am still in learning mode and feeling it out. And I think no one out there should feel pressured to buy crypto of any kind or another. Um, there's a lot of people out there who are obsessed with crypto and will talk to you for hours about why it's the next greatest thing. Um, and no matter how many times we hear an exciting story or a use case or country adopting it or whatever, at the end of the day, it's got limited history, questionable utility in my opinion. Uh, supply and demand seems to be the only thing in my mind that truly carries the momentum, of course, that's for anything that has an upward moving price. But what's driving the demand? I do not know. I'm not an expert, of course, but like how much of what's going on is pure FOMO, fear of missing out and pure speculation versus how much is someone saying to themselves, honestly to themselves, that this is going to work out long term because I have such a deep rooted conviction. I'm not really sure. Uh, listen to my episode with Jimmy Songer, Susanna Sayez for some really interesting takes, though. I am open-minded. But in the context I'm about to talk about, I might as well be a crypto fanboy. See, the beautiful thing about building portfolios is that we don't necessarily need to believe in something for it to make sense to have some of it. And that's where this whole notion of adding Bitcoin means investing as a Nobel Prize winner comes from. So from a recent column in the Buttonwood column of The Economist, we have this piece titled, Why is it wise to add Bitcoin to an investment portfolio? And it gets to the heart of something that I think is really important that people and myself included at times forget. We all want or at least enjoy when our investments and portfolios are going higher. It feels good. If you are someone who checks their investment account frequently, not advised, by the way, you may get tired or frustrated with a few of your positions that seemingly hurt your overall performance constantly, and you just don't know what to do with them, and you decide to sell them. Have you ever felt like that or seen that? Well, what if those were the positions that were going to save you when times get rough? This is the power of diversification, because you could have either owned the risky, more volatile positions from the very start, and sure, you may have had really high peaks that felt really amazing. But then the downs, they'll bring you all the way back down to where the diversified portfolio that's going slow and steady is at its lows. But with a diversified portfolio, you didn't experience the huge drop. So you aren't so frazzled. You are not going to sell. You did not go through an emotional roller coaster. 
The investor that experienced a huge drop might be tempted to get out if he doesn't have experience and the right temperament. That's the point of legendary economist Harry Markowitz's research, which lays the foundations for modern portfolio theory, which is a theory that suggests that a rational investor should maximize returns without taking on too much risk. And diversification is the key here. His genius was in showing that you won't sacrifice your returns by reducing risk through diversification. So the sensible investor who prefers the high levels of diversification and the less volatility because they don't want to go through an emotional roller coaster of their value and their net worth going through such highs and lows, well, this risk-averse investor would look at Bitcoin's volatility and say, hell no, look at that volatility. Plus, it's so high now, I am scared it'll just crash if I buy it now, which honestly is a reasonable reaction. It doesn't take into account, however, what Bitcoin could add to the portfolio as a whole. What if Bitcoin, which is crazy volatile, actually reduces the overall volatility of the portfolio? This is where Bitcoin so far has had success for those who have allocated some of their money into it. The article points out that the sensible investor we spoke of earlier who holds the geographically diversified basket of stock indexes, a real estate fund, and maybe some precious metals. The problem that this person has is that real estate and stocks have traditionally had a very high correlation. When the market goes up, they go up. When the market goes down, they both go down. They move in the same direction. So what do you do? Well, Traditionally, and what people still do and what we can do is we can buy bonds because bonds do have a much lower correlation with stocks as well as real estate. But is there a problem there? Maybe because bonds do reduce volatility, but they tend to reduce overall returns as well. So Bitcoin, on the other hand, has historically had a low correlation of between 0.2 to 0.3 since 2018 versus stocks. Remember, correlation of one would be perfectly correlated and negative one would be perfectly uncorrelated. But this is a weak correlation that adds diversification when the majority of portfolios consists of things which have correlations typically a lot closer to one than they are to zero. And while this correlation is similar to the correlation that stocks have with bonds, the obvious advantage that Bitcoin has over bonds is that in its short lifetime, it has absolutely outperformed bonds by miles. Now, the Buttonwood column decided to test four randomly selected time periods over the last decade to find out what is the optimal basket of securities during that time period using modern portfolio theory. Each time they did this, for each of the four tests, the optimal portfolio had a 1% to 5% allocation to Bitcoin. Even during a period where Bitcoin fell steeply, a 1% allocation added to the risk-reward characteristics of the optimal portfolio. Now, this sort of testing, of course, is in hindsight. We have absolutely no clue what the future holds for Bitcoin. It could become married to the stock market, or it could become less correlated. If the future is a reflection of the past, however, then it is understandable why institutions would now be willing to start allocating a little bit, not because they necessarily think it's going to be what the crypto heads think it will be, the next greatest thing, the thing that's going to change the world for the better, but because it may add value to a diversified portfolio's risk-return characteristics. And I guess the sort of point I want to get across here is that just because something in on its own is extremely volatile... That doesn't mean that when combined with the right mix of assets, that it should be considered as extremely volatile. Your portfolio is not 
each individual stock on its own. It is how they move together as a whole. That is your portfolio and that is what you're owning. So with that said, let's move on to our listener question. So we did have a listener question come in from Steve and Steve says, I am planning on retiring next year at the early age of 50, but I can't shake this nervous feeling that as soon as I do, the market is going to crash. There have been a lot of articles recently suggesting a financial crisis unlike any other we've seen in decades could be right around the corner. Should I be considering delaying my retirement? So Steve, thanks so much for the question. Now, obviously, I don't know your situation. I don't know how much you have in savings. I don't know how much you have in your 401k. I don't know if you are fully retiring, if you'll have some sort of part-time gig, or maybe you own a side hustle or have a side hustle. I don't know how much you need per year in retirement. I really don't know anything. So I obviously can't give you any specific advice. But with that said, there are some things that you might want to think about. You are not wrong to be worried about this because something we do see happen is people retire early when the markets are really high because they're feeling wealthy, healthy, and confident. And then you retire, your employment income is gone, obviously, and you're drawing from your assets. And because the market has gone up for so long and it's at highs, the market goes down, let's say three years in a row. This is a definite risk called sequence of return risk because you are taking money out and the market is not going in your favor. So it's doubly painful. Things can get ugly fast this way. So that said, I would consider the best thing for you could be to sit down with your planner or finding a fiduciary planner who can sit down with you, build a picture of your assets and your and your retirement needs, and start running through some scenarios and really stress test that plan. I like to make sure that our baseline expectations for our plans are very conservative so that we limit the probability of any truly negative scenarios. But you will want to make sure you are fully, fully confident that even in some of the worst case scenarios, you're going to be okay. You do not want to mess with this. So I definitely highly recommend seeking a gut check and second opinion on the plan that you have laid out for yourself. Now, because you are retiring at 50, I trust you know that whatever you have built up over the years has to last a long time, God willing. Uh, things that could ultimately be recommended is changing to a more conservative asset allocation. And there is risk there that, of course, what if the market keeps moving higher? And would that be a move made for the wrong reasons, like trying to time the market? Or is it something that truly makes sense for you? So Steve, the bottom line is that I think the best way for you to ease your nervousness about this, which again, you are rightfully nervous about this, uh, figure out what is truly in your best interest and see a planner who earns your trust and you can work well together with to figure out what works best for you. Don't leave any of this to chance. Alrighty, that's it for today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please keep investing smarter. Emails at investsmarterpod at gmail.com or respond to the newsletter with any questions or comments. See ya.